We're in First Peter chapter two. Turn there. We're going to be doing uh, verses four through eight this morning as we work our way through First Peter, living faithfully in a faithless place. As uh, the idea that we've got uh, is our framework. Seems like most of you were there. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would remind your people who are here this morning who they are in union with Christ Jesus. Because we are so prone to forget And when we do forget who we are, we tend to stumble about because we're concerned with lesser things. Father, there may be some people who are not yet trusting in Christ, and we ask that you would call these people to him so that they can experience his love, hope, and salvation that is in Christ. And so work by your word and by the Spirit to accomplish these good things among us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Last week, hey, there's the pen I lost. I was looking for that yesterday. These funny things happen. Um, Last week I mentioned uh, that there was a birthday in our household. And one of the things that if you're a Cavalero, uh, that you get to enjoy when it's your birthday is... You pick all the movies for the month. Ah, oh, you have to see what you want to watch instead of what the sibling wants to watch. I see. And so uh, right now it's Micah Movie Month. And uh, Micah has been making her opinion known. It should not surprise anyone who knows our daughter. And uh, <coughs> we were at the... Uh, Walmart neighborhood uh, market the other night buying some stuff for pancakes and prayer. And uh, she mentioned, Daddy, there's a red box there. And she made her desires known. <laughs> Lo and behold, Amy got a coupon from Redbox so that we got a free movie if we rented one. So we decided we would have a weekend of Micah movies. And so this weekend we watched Moana. And Storks. These were the two movies that were most upon her heart. And so we enjoyed them this week. And uh, I thought about these movies, as I am wont to do. 
There's similarity in this movie, and some of you are right now going, either because you haven't seen the movies, or because you have seen them and you're going, there's a similarity there? Yeah, there's a very important similarity there. Both of these movies are about communities that have forgotten their identity. And Moana, these are islanders who for centuries had moved from island to island. They would enjoy the fruits of that island, and then they would move on before the island basically got all the resources got worn out. They'd move to another island. So they lived upon the sea, and they made use of the sea, and they went everywhere. And, of course, in storks, what do storks do, you know, so to speak? They don't really do it, but there's the story of the storks deliver babies. And these storks had forgotten who they were. And in both of these movies, what got them to forget who they were was fear. And Moana, the chief's best friend, had died because they had sailed beyond the reef. And so now it was forbidden for anyone to sail beyond the reef, and they were stuck on their island while it died. And storks, there had been one stork named Jasper who delighted in one child he was supposed to deliver so much that he ended up goofing and broke the beacon so he knew where to bring the child. And so this child was stuck among the storks. And they were so afraid of this ever happening again that they stopped delivering babies. And they moved instead to delivering home products. (laughs) They had a business. And they made money. And instead of thinking about bringing joy to families with newborn babies, what they decided to do is make money. Because what's a stork going to do with money? I still haven't figured that one out. But nonetheless, communities that had an identity that due to fear forgot their identity and lost their way. Okay? That's what ties these movies together. Peter is concerned that fear due to persecution will result in these early churches forgetting who they are in Jesus Christ, what their identity is, and becoming about something else. And so he here, in the midst of this passage, uh, and the, the previous context as well as the context that's going to come, is in this reminding them of who they are in Christ Jesus. And for us... It's not like we don't have one identity in Christ Jesus, but there are a number of identities that we have in Christ Jesus. For instance, um, apart from that, I'm a son. We all, we all have multiple identities, not dissociative identity disorder, but we all have multiple identities. You see, I'm a son, but I'm also a husband. I'm a son and a husband and I'm also a father. And not only that, I'm also a pastor. I'm also a friend. I'm many things. 
I have, in a sense, many different aspects to my identity. And so what Peter is doing here is bringing forward some of the aspects of their identity. We've already talked about how the part of their identity is as the family of God being a community of love. Well, we're going to go further in this. Today, our big idea is that Christ unites us as a living temple and a priesthood. And so this, this, pa- this passage picks up uh, with this as-you-come-to-him notion. And grammatically, this is sort of uh, means as you keep coming to him is one way we could translate this. Because it's not like you come to him once, but the idea is that you continue to come to him and the him, of course, being Jesus. And the reason we continue to come to him is because we have experienced or tasted his goodness or as Jonathan Edwards would say, his sweetness and his excellency. And so we come not because we have to come, but we come because we want to come, because we realize there is goodness there. And of course, our sinfulness means that sometimes we don't see that as clearly. Sometimes we don't have the appetite for that as much as perhaps we ought, and so we don't come as frequently as we ought. But Peter is reminding them that they are to come, and they are to come continually to receive the goodness of God from Jesus Christ, just as they initially did in their conversion. They're to continue to seek His sweetness and excellency for themselves. They are to come to Him, and now He reveals something new about Jesus, something a little bit different about Jesus. Jesus, a chosen and precious stone who lives. Peter is going to refer back to Isaiah and Psalm uh, and the Psalms to explain this uh, in this passage. Uh, again, there's that idea that we saw in chapter 1. Okay, that the Spirit of Christ was at work in the prophets to predict the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus. And so what, what Peter is doing here is he's bringing some of those passages to bear. He's taking from the storehouse of the Old Testament and he's going to see, I'm not making this up, people, but this is what the Spirit has predicted about Jesus Christ in this, in the Old Testament and making it known. And one of these things is that Jesus is this chosen and precious stone. Not just any stone. That the Father had taken a stone, a cornerstone, and He has laid it because He intends to build a house or a temple. And that is one of the interesting things about Hebrew is that the same word can mean a house, or a palace, or a temple. And so Peter is kind of using the same idea. This is a not just a house, but is the dwelling place of, a, of God. Therefore, it is also a temple that's going to be built. And we see in other places of the Old Testament that these stones were precious stones. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 5, when they're building Solomon's temple... At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So you didn't pick just any old stone to be the cornerstone of your building because you want your building secure and you want your building uh, 
flush or straight, and you want it strong and safe and beautiful. Okay? And so you chose a strong stone and a straight stone. Because the walls are going to get their character from that cornerstone. And if it's not straight, the walls won't be straight. And so you invested your money in the cornerstone because everything stood upon the quality of the cornerstone. And so while in, in uh, verse one, uh, verse one, chapter one, we saw precious connected to the blood of Jesus as our Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here we see precious as being given to as an estimation of Jesus as a corner stone. This is the stone that's set first to determine its position. So we see that this stone was chosen by someone, the Father, which is similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 1, that uh, Jesus was chosen or elect for his role as Redeemer. But what's amazing is that the Father draws us in the Spirit to Christ because he reveals to us that Jesus is precious and my chosen. I had a blip in my brain. Okay. By faith, we, we begin to share the same evaluation that God has already given to Jesus Christ. Apart from saving faith, in the, in the, apart from the work of regeneration, as we're going to see later on uh, this morning, we don't have that evaluation of Jesus. We don't think that he's precious. We don't think that he's chosen. We don't think that he's worth trusting in. But when the Father draws us to Christ, what he does by the Spirit is gives us a glimpse into the goodness, the preciousness, the chosenness of Jesus for this task. And so as Calvin notes, it is faith alone which reveals to us the value and excellency of Christ. And now, here's what's, what's really kind of amazing. We're united to Christ by faith, and so the, the stone who lives makes us stones who live. Because he's alive eternally, because he has life in and of himself, if we're united to him spiritually, we partake of that life. And though we were dead in sins and trespasses, we become alive in Christ Jesus. And Paul, Peter here wants us to understand that this means that just as he's a living stone, we then become living stones. One of those amazing things I guess I, I think of in my little brain is, you know, if you have a string of, of Christmas lights that looks dead, if you plug it in to the other lit lights, this one lights up too. And you can get this long string of these, of lights that can go around your house that are all 
living because they've been, they've been plugged into the real living one. And that's a really weak example, but I think that you all understand it, right? And so that's really the point. Christ is alive, and because we are joined to Christ, we become alive. And so now that we're living stones, we're not just, you know, off on our own kind of living, breathing, whatever. But he's got this idea that we are then being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus himself is not all of the spiritual house. He's the cornerstone, remember. And so this is a spiritual house. It's not a physical, material house or palace or temple. Now, his original audience was familiar with temples. In their own towns, there would have been temples to who knows what God, depending on the town. And so they were used to going up, you know, it's not Sunday morning, I'm not... Not sure when they would worship, but according to the, to the theology that they had of the God that they worship, they would, they would go to that temple and they would make these physical sacrifices and uh, they would worship in their way. They were used to that, but what Peter is saying is everything is different with Jesus. There is no physical temple. Jesus has replaced the temple that is in Jerusalem, which was about to be torn down. And Jesus is himself a living temple. We've gone from Eden as a original, the original tabernacle to the tabernacle that Moses built to the temple that Solomon built and then later um, was built again by, um, under Cyprus and then Herod to the church. A temple that's not limited geographically to one place. Uh, this is this would be mind blowing and ununder you know difficult to grasp for the average person of Peter's day, just as it is sort of an our day. We're stones that are not joined by mortar, like in a building, but we are stones that are joined by the Holy Spirit into this living spiritual house. The Taj Mahal was built out of a love from a man to a woman. This one's better. It's built in the love of a son to his father. Temple. We see this not just here in 1 Peter, but we see it as well in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. See as well in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also are being built together so you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is not something that is particular to Peter, but we see that this is actually consistently taught by the apostles. This temple is built as people are joined to Jesus by saving faith, 
And evangelism becomes a means by which the temple is built. But when we understand this, we see that evangelism is a temporary measure. There will be no evangelism in heaven. This means that part of our identity is that that we are a temple devoted to the worship of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within his people individually and corporately together as a body. And so Jesus is devoted to making us a place devoted to God's presence and worship. Okay? Secondly, Jesus empowers a holy priesthood to present spiritual sacrifices. As we already seen that he's the cornerstone of a living spiritual temple, but he also empowers a holy priesthood to present animal, uh, sorry, spiritual sacrifices. Okay, the temple being the place where worship happens, but there's the question of who is worshiping in that temple. In Solomon's temple, it was the Levitical priesthood led by, oh, sorry, the, the Levites led by the Aaronic priesthood, subset of Levi. Here, something different is taking place. Here we see that we are built up in order to be a holy priesthood. And so, we're not just a temple. Okay, not just a living spiritual place, but we are also intended to be full-time devoted worshipers of God. This is a, a function of being made in the image of God. We were made to worship God. If you want to steal, I think it was uh, Chris Tomlin who sang that song. Um, we were made to worship. We were made to worship. We were made to worship God, and yet, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, our image was corrupted, and people began to worship anything but God. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to restore us, restore God's image within us, so that we once again become worshipers of the true God. And he makes us, therefore, a holy priesthood. And so this idea of holiness that we've talked about in chapter 1, it doesn't it's not just about morality, but it's also about devotion and in a devotion in worship. That we are wholly devoted to the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? We were set apart for this. And what's interesting, of course, is that Israel was also set apart to worship God, but struggled with that thing we call syncretism, where they continued to worship the true God, but you know they also liked some of these other gods too, so they just kind of brought them in and they worshiped them all together and they thought that was all great and happy and God kept saying, no, no, no. Me and me alone. You shall have no gods beside me or before me. I'm it. And so when we come to Christ, we leave aside the old gods that we worshipped. 
And for them, that would have been Zeus or Athena or any of those uh, Greek gods that they might have worshipped. But for us, we have to leave aside money and power and sex and success and all of those kinds of things that we tend to worship so that we can be wholly devoted to Christ who is sufficient for us. This only happens again because of our redemption. We don't earn this. This is a gift that's given to us. And we see that this is also a reflection of who Israel was supposed to be. In Exodus 19, they're called, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Part of what that means is the more holy we become, the more we will find our joy in Jesus. The reason we don't find much joy in Jesus is because we're not very holy yet. And so there's a struggle that goes on within our hearts. All of our hearts. And so when we do delight in God, when we do delight in Jesus, that results in the fact of worship that is directed to the object of our joy, we begin to worship Him. And so we, that's part of why I say Christ empowers us. Because not only are we united to Christ, but also Christ dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while He dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, He empowers us to worship. And so when you're not feeling like you want to worship, uh, where do you turn? You ought to turn to Jesus. Give me a desire to worship. I am distracted today. I've got my heart set on earthly things. Help me to set my heart on You and to delight in You and to worship in You. Now, I've never seen this movie aside from flicking the channels and seeing bits of it and going, why does everybody like this movie? But Rudy, you have the... the, Uh, Sean Astin plays the young man who always wanted to play for Notre Dame, and he's too small. And so he doesn't get a college scholarship to go to Notre Dame to play football. But he he, he tries to come on as a walk-on, and, you know, he's, he's... He's too small. He's undersized. He, you know, he's, he's not very skilled as a player, but you know what? He's got heart. And he outpractices everybody and makes the team. And there's this one uh, key moment that I hear is in the movie because I didn't, again, see the movie. Um, <laughs> see, there's a sports movie I haven't seen. <laughs> it's all good. The coach says, I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. They've got the physical attributes that I want in a player, but they don't have your heart. And if, I, if they had your heart, they would destroy the other team. What happens in our union with Jesus Christ is that God takes the heart of Christ, so to speak, and puts it in us so that though we lack desire, now we are given desire by Christ Himself so that we want to worship and so that we actually do worship. 
And so if you hear this as sort of a, ah, there's another duty to do, you also need to hear Christ lives in you so that you want to do that. And so we're empowered in order to offer spiritual sacrifices. Gone are the sheep. Gone are the bulls. Gone are the bread. Wait a minute, the bread and wine are still here, but uh, so to speak. But don't have the same meaning that they did under the shadows and types of the Old Testament. The people who, these early Christians who, were, who came from a Gentile background, they were used to physical offerings. They were used to slaughtering animals and uh, devoting meat to the gods and everything else. And so there's a great shift that happens because Christ is the final sacrifice. Christ is the one who has, has borne our sin. And so we no longer need to offer animals but we still need to offer something. Not to take away sin, but to express our gratitude as well as our, to express our dependence upon Him. And so these spiritual sacrifices, these non-material sacrifices, and it's odd because Paul in Romans 12 uses similar language when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, they're offering themselves to God, not, you know, like, I'm going to kill myself for you, God. But they're devoting themselves to God as an act of spiritual worship. I belong to you. Use me for your glory. It's sort of the idea that is there. What else comprises uh, this spiritual worship uh, besides giving ourselves to Him? Psalm 51, for instance, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so when we, when we offer God our lamentation because of our sin, when we offer ourselves to Him uh, as broken people, He receives that. That's acceptable, so to speak, to Him. Hebrews 13, through Christ then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And so we don't just do that, we sing and we pray. This is our spiritual worship, our spiritual offerings to Him. Because Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law as the sacrifice for sin and purity, but we rejoice in Him. And so the songs we sing and the prayers that we pray should express our joy in our redemption. They should express our humility because we are creatures who don't deserve to be loved by God. They should express our contrition because we have sinned and broken God's law. They should express our gratitude for having been redeemed and so much more. When you think of worship, you can't think of one emotion. There's a lot of emotions that should be going into worship. Our song and our prayers are meant in part to express 
our identity in Christ Jesus. We miss that sometimes. Sometimes we think that the songs are just something we have to do to warm up for the, for the sermon, you know. But they're meant to express our identity, to remind us of our identity. So one of the interesting things that happened in Moana is uh, it starts with a song. And Moana's father is singing the song, and he, he picks up again with it later, and he's talking about how great the island is. And how great it is to stay on the island. And how bad it is to leave the island. He was used, they had changed their, the songs of the people to maintain the status quo. Okay. To, um, when their identity changed, their song changed. No longer was it a song about how great it was to be out on the ocean and to fish in the deep waters, uh, you know, and to go from island to island. Now it was, isn't it great to stay right here? The songs you sing will reflect what's important to you. So pay attention to what you sing. Because it reveals what's important to you. And at the end of Moana, when they've decided that uh, they can leave the island, their songs changed. And they were rejoicing in the fact that they were a people who once again lived upon the sea and went from island to island to enjoy beautiful new places. But all of our best efforts are flawed. Because Peter mentions that they are acceptable to God, not on their own, but through Jesus Christ. Right now I'm reading um, Rankin Wilborn's book um, on union with Christ. And um, he talks about someone, a friend of his, who was socially awkward. And, you know, socially awkward people have a hard time in relationships, and they're not warm, and no one goes up and gives them a hug, and so um, sometimes they struggle with um, affection. Okay? This person got a job at Disney. They were Mickey Mouse. And they went from someone that no one embraced to children running up squeezing with all their might because they had put on someone else. The person, if they, if they saw, those kids saw this person on the street, on the sidewalk of Disney, before, you know, in and of themselves, they would not run up, they would not hug them, they would not squeeze them at all. It's only because they're wearing Mickey. The father receives our worship because we're wearing Jesus. The Father welcomes us into His presence because we're wearing Jesus. It's not because you're so great. It's because Jesus is great. Because He's precious. And when you're united to Him, you are precious to God. 
And so Jesus is devoted to making us devoted to God, expressed in spiritual worship. Now let's get to the bad part of this text, the difficult part of this text. Jesus is a stone of stumbling for those who disobey. This is, this is news I wish I didn't have to deliver. This is personal for me because, I am the, as I've said before, I'm the only member of my family who believes. Okay? So I, the things I say, I, I don't say lightly. I, I wish they were different, but I am bound by Scripture. In the faithless place, not everyone is going to share our view of Jesus. It was true then, and it's true now. And so there were many people that they knew that did not think that Jesus was precious and chosen. We see that Peter reminds us that Jesus, though accepted and chosen by the Father, was rejected by men, and was rejected in particular, he says, by these guys called the builders when he quotes from Isaiah. And so initially it was the Jewish leaders who rejected Christ. Uh, We see this uh, in Acts chapter 4, for instance, Um, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. Okay, there's rejection and there's acceptance, God's God's estimation being different than man's estimation. By him, this man, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so back in that sermon in Acts chapter 4, Peter said the same thing as he's writing to these people now. Except now it's not just the Jewish leaders. Now it's the people around them. And so we see even in those movies that I mentioned before, and Moana, her father, the chief, rejects the message of Moana, at least initially. And we see that in Storks, the boss, Stork, rejects this idea of delivering children again, and he tries to put a stop to it. And so we see that people have their own ideas about who God is and what Messiah should be, and they fundamentally disapprove of the one that God the Father has sent to be the Savior. These people have not tasted that the Lord is good. They do not see Jesus as precious and chosen. These people are not interested in worshiping Him so much as they are interested in worshiping themselves. There's a thing called the uh, the national, sorry, the narcissistic personality index, and oddly enough, it is given to college students. It's probably the wrong group to give it to, but nonetheless, they've noticed a pattern over the last 30 years. College students have gotten 30% more narcissistic, more wrapped up in themselves. And I would say that's because the gospel has become eclipsed in American society. 
The gospel is the only thing that can save us from our narcissism among everything else that's wrong with us. And so narcissistic people make life all about them. And so you have these people that would rather be the star of a play in their backyard than being an extra in a Broadway production. It's all about them. They don't want to concede to Jesus the center stage. So we see that Jesus is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. People trip over him. Sometimes temporarily, like Mona's father, Moana's father, because he eventually saw the light, but uh, sometimes permanently, like the boss stork who died, cherishing his uh, warped dream. So I think he did. So, people can't avoid Jesus. They're either going to believe in him, or they're going to reject him, And those who believe in Him experience eternal life. Those who reject Him are broken by Him and destroyed by Him. Why are they scandalized by Jesus? That's the idea there of offense. If you transliterate it, it becomes scandal. Why are they scandalized by Jesus? Well, the self-righteous, I think, are scandalized by Jesus for two reasons, one of which is that incredibly weird notion that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The people who are righteous in and of themselves or think they are are scandalized the fact that Jesus would welcome sinners. They're just like the Pharisees that we see Jesus meeting in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They don't want dirty people in. Get them out of here. And so that's one reason they're scandalized, but they're also scandalized by the flip side of that coin, which is you need a savior too. And because they're righteous in and of themselves, they, they're proud and they don't want to admit or be humbled by the fact that they need a Savior from sin. And so they're scandalized by Jesus. But it's not just the self-righteous who are scandalized by Jesus. It's also satisfied sinners who are scandalized by Jesus. Because while there is uh, grace that is offered, while there is forgiveness that is offered, and that sounds good to a degree, Jesus also says he wants to make them holy. And they don't want to change. They might be interested in being able to uh, sin without penalty, but to become holy, that's a different story. Now, I said, I, I did not say they must make themselves holy, but that Jesus will make them holy. Okay? That he's got a plan and purpose for them that involves their ultimate rejection of sin and walking in righteousness, and they don't want to do that. And so they are scandalized by Jesus because they don't want to leave their sin. And so whichever it is of these groups, the the self-righteous or the satisfied sinners, they disobey the Word. 
And this could, this could be referring to either they're refusing to hear the call to repent, or it could just simply refer to the fact that they just walk in disobedience, which, well, they're, they're going to walk in disobedience. But I think this also has the idea of they're refusing that call to repent. But here's the, here's the stone that can make many a Christian stumble at times. As they were destined to do, or as they were appointed to do. This is the hard truth. In his book, Chosen by God, R.C. Sproul has a, t- uh, a chapter entitled um, Toil, Toil, Bo- Trouble and Boil, or I can't remember what it is. You know, things the witches say. The reality of what we call double predestination is a difficult pill for some people to swallow, but I believe it's taught here. But I think it's taught in a particular way that hopefully is less hard to swallow. Let me put it this way. In our salvation, or rather in salvation, when God predestines someone to salvation, God is active. Okay? He sent Jesus to save. He sends evangelists to speak. And not only that, but he also regenerates sinners or gives them new life. He is active so that they receive the salvation that he has appointed for them. Okay? When it talks about this, God is not active. God is rather passive. In other words, He's not actively moving to save them by applying the merits of Christ, but neither is He actively keeping them from belief. This is how some people unfortunately think about this idea of double predestination. Uh, Maybe when you were a kid you played monkey in the middle. Uh, or, or keep away, one of those games. You know, you have a ball, and there's two of you, or maybe more, and you've got the ball, and there's one kid in the middle who um, gets very frustrated because, you know, you're supposed to get the ball. And they keep the ball away from you. And there's the idea that here's the three members of the Trinity with salvation, and every time the sinner gets close, it's like, woo, I didn't get it that time. So this idea that there are people who want to be saved and that God is preventing them from coming to saving faith because He's mean. That is not what I believe the Scriptures teach. God is not actively keeping people from salvation. God is passing over them so they get what they want, which is autonomy, which results in damnation. Do you understand the difference between those two things? And you understand, hopefully, the difference in how that reflects the glory of God or steals from the glory of God. That we believe rightly on that, I think, is very important so we don't distort the character of God. Anyway, in these kids' movies, 
there were disgraced heroes that went before the rest of the community and ended up restoring the identity of that community. Jesus was a disgraced hero. He was rejected by the authorities, rejected by the builders, in order to restore our image, to restore our identity as not only a community of love, the family of God, but also as a living temple that is devoted to the worship of our triune God as holy priests. Jesus is the the captain of our salvation, the trailblazer, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12. And so, but like Jesus, we too will face opposition in a faithless place. But we become more alive as we live faithfully to our new identity in Christ. In other words, we become more like Jesus, we become more fully human when we live out that identity that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I hope uh, I didn't drown these people in verbiage. Help us to hear what you're saying to us about who we are. Not who we are in ourselves as sinners, but who we are in Jesus. Help us to grow in our understanding of our union with Christ and all that it means, including this new identity. Help us to understand what it means to be a worshiping community, to be individual worshipers as a part of that community, and how, because Christ also lives in us, we want to worship. And when we don't, there's someone we can call out to to help us. Father, help us as well to have a greater understanding of what it means, what it looks like to withstand opposition, to, to not go with the flow and just go along to get along but to be that distinctive community of people who worship Jesus and worship you and worship the Holy Spirit. Help us to grow up into that too. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.